You might know it's um, Mother's Day today, so I hope you remember to get your mum a card. The card um, Chloe got, Hannah, said on the front, um, something like, Mum, I love you so much, and when I'm big, I want to be just like you. That's lovely, isn't it? And then inside it said, Happy Birthday. Um, <laughs> so she can't read, it's not her fault. Um, but, but we want to be like our, our Heavenly Father, don't we? That's my segue there. Um, and to that end, shall we, shall we pray? Let's bow our heads. Father God, you are wonderful. You are great. You're even greater than our mums. And uh, we want to be like you. So I pray that um, as we look at this passage, we'll be shaped by what we see, that our minds will be changed, that our hearts will be transformed, and that our lives would bear fruit in accordance with your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now then, it's a piece of literature of unparalleled quality. It's been translated, I'm told, into hundreds and hundreds of languages. It's sold millions of copies around the world. And I am, of course, speaking about Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, that wonderful piece of literature. I'm being sarcastic, for those of you who who don't realize. Um, There's so much wrong with this book, um, I don't really know where to start. But there's a particular line in it, which I remember when I read it about 10 years ago. It really got my hackles up. Um, It says something like this. You you remember the main character is Robert Langdon, and he's uncovering some sort of conspiracy. And his sidekick, Sophie, they're having a bit of a conversation. And Robert Langdon says this. Every faith in the world is based on fabrications. That is the definition of faith. Acceptance of that which we can imagine to be true, but that which we cannot prove. So according to Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, faith means believing something without any evidence. Uh, Faith is a, a blind leap in the dark. It's wishful thinking. It's an intellectual crux for those who can't hack the big bad world. And if you read your papers and and watch films and things like that, that that's the sort of definition of faith which we keep hearing again and again, isn't it? Faith is believing something without any logical or reasonable basis. I wonder what you make of that. Well, it might be that some of us here tonight, we we would agree with that definition. Perhaps you come here with a friend or or a family member, and uh, you've got your questions about Christian faith. And you look at your friend or your family member who bought you, and you're thinking, surely this Christian stuff, Jesus died, and then he came back to life. Surely it's just nonsense. And you're wondering, why is your intelligent friend or family member, why is it they believe this nonsense? It's lovely nonsense. It's nice to have a a community, a church like this, something to be involved in, but surely it's nonsense. But imagine, for most of us here tonight, this definition of faith, I reckon it has something of a paralyzing effect on, on us and on our public witness as Christians. I think it's little surprise that many of us feel quite nervous about opening our mouths and speaking about our faith with our friends and our colleagues. We might prefer to keep our mouths shut because we, we know that if we open our mouths, people might just think we're a bit thick, a bit simple for believing all that nonsense. And if we do speak, perhaps we, we mention social stuff like, oh, my church is great, or my small group's lovely, but we're nervous about speaking about Jesus, his death for me, his resurrection. This morning, I, I want to 
challenge that popular definition of faith held up by Dan Brown and others. And I want to show you how Paul might define it. And I hope, I hope this will give us confidence to speak more, more boldly, about our own faith. So if you'd be so kind, please uh, follow with me uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. It's page 1155. You should have a sort of a blue-looking handout in your service sheet. It should give you a steer on where we're going. You might know Paul here is writing to a church in Corinth. That's uh, Greece. And he begins here by urging them to stick with his message of the risen Christ. It seems the church here, they've been listening to too much popular Greek uh, philosophy. That You might not know this, but the dominant worldview at this time when Paul wrote was that matter, that is, that is physical stuff like this lectern here, that's bad. Our bodies, our physical bodies, that, that's bad. But, but spiritual stuff like our souls is good. And so the, the prevailing philosophy of the time argued that the goal of life is to escape this cage of our bodies, the physical, and enter the spiritual. That was the prevailing worldview. But Paul was teaching that Christ was bodily resurrected, which means that the new creation will be physical. So you can imagine to the Corinthian culture, Paul's message was just embarrassing. It just didn't go with where the culture went. So maybe the church is thinking, can't we just jettison Paul's teaching on the resurrection? It's just a bit backwards. Can't we just sideline it and and emphasize the other stuff, the spiritual stuff, which we like? Well, look how Paul responds to that sort of thinking in verse 1 in your Bibles. Chapter 15, verse 1. He writes this. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Paul uses a variety of word pictures or illustrations in these verses to, to underline how important it is that they stick with his message. So here he says in verse 1, notice, they have received or, or inherited this gospel, this good news. You might have uh, come across uh, this advert for Patek Philippe watches. Have you, have you seen this one? I'm holding it up for those listening on tape. It's a, it's a black and white photo of a man, I guess, in his sort of mid-40s. And he's there with his, I guess, 12-year-old son, looking lovingly at one another. And subtly glistening on the dad's wrist is a Patek Philippe watch. £20,000. Very pricey, very expensive. And the, uh, the tagline underneath this photo is this. You never actually own a Patek Philippe. You merely look after it for the next generation. Do you, do you get the sense here? That, that's the way Paul used this idea of received. They've received this precious message. That's one picture. Another picture here in verse 1. He says they're standing on the gospel. When I was younger, we had a a big pond in our back garden, and in the winter, it would always freeze over. And my siblings and I, we used to entertain ourselves endlessly by seeing how many of us could stand on the frozen ice before seeing if it sort of cracks and we sort of break through. But before we step out, we'd always look to see how thick the ice is. If it's wafer thin, or is it nice and chunky and thick? 
Well, Paul says here, you are already standing on my message. You put your full weight on it. Well, the last picture here in verse 2 is of them needing to hold firmly to the word Paul has preached to them. You might have seen footage of, of Coast Guard helicopters. You know those red ones. And there's a man sort of, or a woman stranded in the waters needing help. And a, and a winchman lowers a rope and the winchman says, hold firmly to the rope and you'll be saved. And that's the, that's the image here. Hold firmly to the message and you'll be saved. I wonder what you make of them. Um, Paul's argument so far. He says they've received his message. He says they're standing on his message. He said that they to hold on to his message. Otherwise, their faith is in vain. I wonder what you make of that. Well, I'm kind of less asking, well, okay, Paul, that's, that's all very nice. But is your message actually true? <laughs> is it true? Because surely the issue isn't really our faith at all, is it? That's an irrelevance. The issue is, what is the object of our faith? And is that object faith-worthy? To go back to our illustrations, is that watch which we've received, is it really that valuable? Is the ice which we're standing on, is it really that thick? And is the winchman at the top of that rope, is he really that reliable? Well, Paul now sets out his case why they should stick with his message. And the firstly we see here is because it really happened. It really happened. Follow with me in verse 3 in your Bibles. Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as a matter of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Paul begins here in verse 3 by stating he has passed on reliably the message that he himself has received. So Paul says this isn't a game of Chinese whispers. Do you remember that game as a child? So if I whisper a message into Callum's ear, the Lord of the Rings, uh, Callum then whispers it quietly along. And and, and over time he gets a stort until we get to Hattie here, and Hattie says purple monkey dishwasher. That's that's the way sort of uh, the, the game works. And people imagine the Christian message... It's a bit like Chinese whispers. It's a bit like that. It kind of got distorted over time. So, so Jesus' message, it kind of began as, well, I'm just a nice guy and just be nice to one another. But over time, some of the more overly enthusiastic followers of Jesus, they, they start embellishing the message until we get here 300 years later and suddenly, what? Jesus is God? He rose again from the dead? Where did that come from? That's a lot of, a lot of people imagine that's, that's what happens. And it's a great theory, isn't it? It's a great theory, very compelling theory. There's a small problem of evidence which kind of gets in the way of it. And we have around, um, I'm reliably told, around 25,000 manuscripts or, or, or segments of the New Testament. And the only of which you can pop down the road to, to the British Museum and, 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 and you can see one of the earliest fragments of John's Gospel, which uh, is, was, I think I'm reliably told is dated just decades after the original was written. And, and you know what? Comparing the, the earliest, earliest fragment we have to the very, very latest ones which we have later on, 
you'll be amazed at the accuracy. Apart from the, the odd typo, minor typo, there is no substantial change between the very earliest and the very latest. Paul passed on reliably what he had heard to the Corinthians. And we can trust that what we have here has been reliably passed on to us. You might know that my dad sometimes visits universities speaking on this sort of subject, the reliability of of the Christian faith. And I remember at one event, it was about uh, 15 15 years ago, he uh, speaking to a group of uh, historians, many of whom weren't, weren't Christian, and uh, he, he, blew off, uh, he pulled out a book, I think he got at a second-hand bookshop, and um, he was going to read a section of it to them. And he asked them to uh, work out the following things. He asked them, who is this uh, section of this passage, who is it speaking about? Uh, when was it written, and who by? Who is it about, when was it written, and who by? And uh, my dad then began uh, reading from this book. And I, I'll read it to you, it's a lengthy quote. Are you, are you up for playing this game? You've got a challenge, this is a challenge for you. Here's the quote. A sorrowful man, acquainted with bitterest grief, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our grief he bore, our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But he was wounded and bruised for our sins. He was chastised that we might have peace. He was lashed and we were healed. We were the ones who strayed away like sheep. We left God's path to follow our own way. Yet God laid on him the guilt and the sin of every one of us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he never said a word. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he stood dumb before the ones condemning him. From prison to trial, they led him away to his death. But among the people of that day, who among the people of that day realized it was for their sins that he was dying. He was suffering their punishment. He was buried like a criminal in a rich man's grave, but he had done no wrong and never spoken an even word. But after the suffering of his soul, he saw the light of life and was satisfied. My dad then closed this, this old book. The students then chatted amongst themselves. Um, who was it about? When was it written and who by and they came back with some answers. They said, well, it's clearly it's about Jesus. Um, clearly, it was written by probably one of his earliest followers because of the, the level of sort of detail uh, in the account. They were short to learn that that was actually written by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus. And they then listened very carefully uh, to the remainder of the talk. And that, that's kind of what Paul means here when he says that his message was promised in the scriptures. Look, look down at verse 3. It says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Verse 4, he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, we don't have time now to chase around the whole of the Old Testament, the hundreds and hundreds of things just like that passage, promising and prophesying in detail what would happen to the Christ. We don't have time for that. But the point here is that Paul's message about Christ's death and his resurrection is, 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 is promised way back then it's clearly anticipated again and again well Paul spends the rest of this remaining section emphasizing how his message was publicized by eyewitnesses so notice in verse 5 he mentions Peter by name 
and the rest of the twelve. They're, they're people who, who physically saw the risen Lord Jesus in those days after his resurrection. We might, we might think, well, yeah, but they were really upset, weren't they, those days? They're full of grief, full of torment. Maybe they just they really wanted Jesus to be there with them. Or maybe they felt that Christ was sort of spiritually with them and amongst them. And so they, they sort of said, yes, Christ is alive. But what they really meant is he's sort of really he's alive in their hearts. Perhaps that's what we've heard. Well, verse 6, Paul goes on. He says, over 500 people saw the risen Christ at the same time. So clearly it wasn't a hallucination, was it? Paul says most of these guys are still alive. You can, you can go and ask them if you want to know whether this really happened. But we might think, yeah, but maybe those 500 people, maybe they had a bit of a conspiracy. Maybe they, they, they wanted money and they wanted power. Many religions are all about that. And so maybe they conspired this great story about Jesus coming back to life in order to control people. Maybe that's what happened. But then look at verse 7. He, he singles out James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, and then the rest of the apostles. And I wonder if he does that because James and the rest of the apostles were executed for proclaiming that Christ had risen from the dead. Now I know lots of people, they, they, they die for things which they mistakenly think to be true. Nobody would deliberately die for a lie. That would be stupid. The apostles didn't explode around the known world proclaiming Christ and, and, and risk their own deaths for a lie. That would be outrageous. Now why does Paul labour this fact? Why does he emphasise it? It is true, it's true, it happened. I wonder if it's because he wants this church in Corinth, this church which is in a culture which is very hostile to this message, he wants them to know that their faith is not in vain. That the watch, if you like, the watch that they're wearing it isn't some cheap knockoff. It's the real deal. The ice they're standing on, it, it's, it's, it's thick. It's really thick. That rope that they're clinging onto and the winchman at the top of it, they're reliable. And perhaps this is something we need to be reassured of tonight. I, I think our culture is, is becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian message. And there will be, an, there will be a temptation for us to perhaps just slowly slip off that watch and put it in a box under our bed. Or maybe just to slowly, tentatively, quietly step back off the ice. Or maybe just to let go of that rope. But friends, being a Christian means to be publicly a follower of Christ. So have faith to state that Your faith is based on facts. It's based on historic truth. It happened. Have confidence to mention the name of Jesus, not just church and social stuff, but the name of Jesus and his death for us and his resurrection. Have confidence to say that what you believe, it's true. Because it really happened. A large part of what I do most of my week is, is meeting up with people who have big questions about, about the Christian faith. And, and many of these folk, they, they wouldn't yet call themselves followers of Jesus, but they have, they have big questions they're thinking through. Now, I've noticed over the last 12 years, there's a big shift, really, in the sort of questions that people ask. So 12 years ago, most people's questions 
they, they kind of relate to the sort of stuff we've just been thinking about. You know, did it really happen? What's the history? What's the evidence? All that sort of stuff. It's funny, nowadays, the folk I meet up with, they're not really so interested in that. They want to know, does it work? Does the, does the experience of the Christian life, does it, does it match all the hype? And I don't know why there's a real shift. Maybe people now are less cynical, and maybe we're more postmodern and aren't so bothered about facts and things like that. But whatever the, whatever the reason, we have good news for them. Not only is the Christian faith true, it also works. It also works. And that's where Paul takes us next. Look down at verse 8. He now speaks of his own experience. Verse 8. Let me read that. Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of Christ. It's funny, if if Paul was trying to big himself up as this really reliable eyewitness, he completely shot himself in the foot. Completely. Uh, Greek culture is very very similar to to what we're seeing at the moment in the US elections. You know, the US elections, it seems to be all about being impressive and having this great bravado, being great rhetoric. It, It doesn't seem to be so much about substance and policy and truth, does it? Well, it's kind of similar in that in Greek culture. They're really big into rhetoric and being impressive and being important. And what does Paul do here but do a demolition job on himself? Why? Well, I wonder if it's because he wants to demonstrate not not his own impressiveness, but the impressiveness of God's grace. He describes himself rather unflatteringly in verse 8 as one abnormally born. This word is used elsewhere to describe a child who who comes out post-term, but severely deformed. (laughs) That's the word Paul uses to describe himself. He says, verse 9, he's the least of the apostles. He's unworthy to be numbered among them. Why? Because he spent years and years hunting down followers of Christ, men and women, and stoning them to death. Now we all have pasts, don't we? We all have periods of life, maybe we look back on them and we're ashamed of them. And we all have presence as two, and we find ourselves saying things and doing things which we look back on with regret. We have pasts, we have presence, and that means many of us were worried about the future. What on earth is our God going to say to us when we stand before him in judgment what will our creator say the day we meet him this is why I love verse 10 I love it verse 10 Paul writes but by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace towards me was not in vain friends here is grace which saves when Paul spoke earlier about how Christ died for our sins, you could tell he didn't do that with some sort of cold academic distance. A bit like how you might explain to your niece or nephew how algebra works. You know, this is how it works, it's true, yada, yada, yada. There's no emotional connection to that whatsoever, is there? Or maybe for some of you. Paul, Paul, says, Paul says this with, with, with deep, unutterable gratitude and a burning heart that Christ died for him, his sins, him, the murderer. 
The story is told of um, an elephant and a mouse. And they're at the foot of, of a very long rope bridge across a ravine. It's a true story. It's not, it's not a true story. And, and, the, and the mouse, being a mouse, slightly timid, slightly scared to, uh, to cross this slightly ropey, rickety bridge. He, he, he's slightly, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I'm going to go across. But his friend, the elephant, big, bold, ballsy, the elephant proudly stomps across it. And the mouse, seeing that the rope bridge could take the elephant's weight, therefore knew that it would take his weight too. So if you're here tonight wondering whether God's grace would work for you, given the things you've done, given the things you've said, given the things you, you, you let run through your mind, if you're wondering whether Christ's death could really pay for your sin well look at Paul look at Paul and consider the great weight of his and consider how great how sufficient how marvelous God's grace is to cover him God's grace is sufficient it is sufficient for him it is sufficient for you here is a grace which saves but also here is a grace which changes so look that back with me again from verse 10 Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not in vain. No, I worked harder than all of the apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You see, grace, it changes people. It really does. It certainly changed Paul. He went from being a persecutor of the church to being a preacher for the church. He went from being a man really concerned with his, his own prestige and his own impressiveness to being a man who, who's actually supremely concerned with God's impressiveness and the power of his grace. God's grace changes people. And friends, it, it can change us too. Normally at this point in the sermon, the preacher would pull out an old biography and uh, he would tell you a really powerful, moving story of, I don't know, a slave trader who became a pastor, or maybe an ex-gang member who became a social reformer, or some equally powerful but distant story. And we go afterwards saying, well, that's a lovely story, but it's pretty distant to what, where my, I am in, in my situation. Can God change me? Can he change my heart? Can he change my desires? Can he make me so I, I want to serve others and serve his church? Can he do that? So I'm not going to tell you a powerful, moving story. Sorry. Instead, I want you to look to the person next to you and look at them. Look at that friend or that family member who, who, who brought you along tonight. Because sitting there, sitting next to you, is a testament to God's grace. Sitting right there is a forgiven sinner and a changed life. Sitting right there is someone who, who, who wants to be used in Christ's service. So you, you might be here tonight, you've still got big questions about, yeah, but is, is the Christian faith true? And we, we can deal with those, we can answer those questions. But you can undoubtedly see that the Christian faith works. You know that already, don't you? Because of your friend who brought you along. If you're here tonight and you are persuaded it's true, I want to encourage you to... Find that box which you found that Patek Philippe watch in. Take it out and whack it back on your wrist and boldly wear it. I want us to, this week, demonstrate to others just how thick the ice is. I want us to shout 
about how wonderful this rope is and how reliable that winchman is. Because Paul says our faith is not in vain and God's grace is not in vain. So brothers and sisters, have confidence. Christ was risen from the dead. Let me pray. Father God, we praise you for the wealth of evidence you've given to us to settle our hearts, for the fact that the truth of the resurrection is, is, was wonderful, that it is true, it happened, and we praise you, Father, that it works. We praise you for your grace towards us, your grace to save us like the same way you saved Paul, your grace to change us. And Father, please help us to believe that truth, that your grace can change us. We're timid, Lord, make us bold. If we're selfish, help us to be selfless. Uh, Give us ideas about how we might serve your church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.